to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, after Mark offers some advice on the sort of help we need when reading scripture, John and Mark attempt to find an answer to the question, given the suffering our world contains, how should we then live? Mark, even as you told us last week about Jeremiah, I'd like to jump into how much it reminds me how leaders need to be patient when people say the Bible's difficult to understand. I mean, the two pastors itself, like, how am I to know that? Right. You know, the amount of studying that you had to do to realize that even after chapter 20, when this all gets in bits and pieces, the average person trying to read through the Bible in a year, they're reading this saying, I feel stupid. It's really difficult to put these pieces together. And so I still come down to the person's kind of getting lost saying, really, I'm supposed to be, I mean, I'm reading this because I'm, I'm trying to be holy. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to worship God and I'm just getting confused. Are you sure that God isn't mad at me? You know, <laughs> what about, you know, you, know yeah, can you, yeah. can you tell me about your doubts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. I would say, first of all, that uh, we evangelicals don't realize that we often need help reading Scripture and that a really good study Bible, the ESV study Bible or the NIV study Bible, uh, that those study Bibles have notes that allow you to understand things like the Pasher in chapter 20 is not the same as the Pasher in 21. And uh, people would probably do better to slow down and read less a year. For years, what I did was I read through a biblical book, reading all of the notes at the bottom of, this was when there wasn't even an ESV study Bible, it was the NIV study Bible, reading all of the notes at the bottom of the page, looking up all of the scriptures. Those Bibles are just black with comments in their margins. So what I would say, first of all, is that sometimes we don't know to ask for the help that we need. But then when we get to your question, I'm glad you used the word mad when you said, isn't God mad at me? Because that's exactly how many of us feel when we're suffering. But interestingly enough, mad is not a good word to use about a state of God. In fact, it's a pretty bad choice of words to use for a state about God. Mad for us suggests a negative emotion that gets hold of us in such a way that it starts to dominate our perspective on whatever we're angry about. Anger and wrath are both better terms, but with all three of those, we need to keep in mind that passion never overcomes God. As the father of Jesus Christ, 
with whom we are in union as Christians. God cannot be mad or angry or wrathful with us because he has poured out all his wrath on his son. Always our suffering is disciplinary rather than retributive because our Lord suffered his father's wrath for our sin. You know, uh, part of that makes me want to just bow down in worship, um, start singing, and part of that reminds me that I need to hear it over and over because I don't know if it's the sinful side of me or I'm overly diligent or what, but I just do. I need to hear it over and over. What about you? Yep. Yep. In fact, I think that perhaps the uh, greatest gift to me of writing this series of books is the days and weeks and years now that I have spent in Scripture thinking about these things and the way that as I get a more and more detailed picture of what Scripture is saying about our suffering and how we should think about it, the more I become settled in realizing that ultimately with those who are his children, suffering is always for our good. The pain is still here. So how am I supposed to live daily as a Christian? Mark, years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, How Should We Then Live? I found it to be a very awkward use of words and let my annoyance at that get in the way of how profound and fundamental was the question it posed. Isn't this the question we wake up to every morning as Christians? If the Christian story is true, the whole story, how do I live today to shine light on that reality in me? Really good question. Seems to me, John, that you live in the light of the whole story, which means you live in the light of our Lord's resurrection, which is God's ultimate assurance that someday suffering and death will be vanquished for those who put their faith in Jesus. Think of Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Uh, Believing that uh, should alter our perspective on anything that may happen to us in this world. We will have, uh, we should, we will or should at least have a new attitude with suffering, I think, becoming primarily a reminder of the way Adam and Eve and all the rest of us have gone astray. And then it seems to me, as we think of our Lord's resurrection and the way how his incarnation, his life, his sinless life, his death, were paying for our sins, and then we think of his resurrection as God's sign that he is no longer at war with us. When we think of all of that, it seems to me that then we're ready to try to fulfill the Great Commission. 
Well, somehow I get caught up into the almost trying to believe more. It's like if if I work hard enough, I'm like psyching myself up. As, yeah. And, and and I go, you know, I go with, as a lot of people do, to that scripture of, I believe, help my unbelief uh, in Mark chapter 9. And even if people don't remember the context of that, of the father who fo- first said it to Jesus, isn't it a daily reality of most Christians in light of suffering? I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, I don't think it has to be. I think, and I guess this is because it's my more or less ordinary experience, that it's possible to become so thoroughly convinced of the perspective we get from the full Christian story that suffering doesn't at least usually challenge our faith. Instead, it corroborates it by becoming what we expect, given our acquaintance with the full Christian story, that suffering is what we expect to come out of the sins of our first parents and out of our sins. And therefore, we expect that this is going to happen to us. And we, in that sense, are kind of forearmed. And it doesn't it doesn't make us think, well, is the story untrue? It corroborates the truth of the story. And I think there's some evidence of that, that as people look at suffering, rather than it ending up in the unbelief that the apologists suspect it might, and in fact drives people to God, that, <laughs> that you're asking us to do something which I think could be in the dictionary under counterintuitive, <laughs> you know? Am I to think about pain as something which could be useful and helpful to others? Um, I mean, even saying it out loud, that sounds a bit nuts, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does, but interestingly enough, John, uh, even uh, non-Christian empirical researchers in psychology are willing to acknowledge that contributing to another person's well-being is among the most satisfying experiences that any of us can have. We are not primarily just selfish creatures always out for ourselves. We may think that if we satisfy our needs first, that we'll be most satisfied. But what's been shown empirically is that that's not so. Let me give you an interesting example. My wife has been a seamstress all of her life having taught herself in the fourth grade on an old treadle sewing machine, the one that you worked with your feet that was in her family's garage, how to sew. And she has had good but not great machines ever since, with the last one lasting her for about 25 years. Now, last fall, I found myself thinking I'd like to buy her a really top-of-the-line sewing machine And so I surprised her. There wasn't any reason for it. It wasn't birthday. It wasn't Christmas or anything like that. It just seemed to me that given all the years that she had sewn and done so much, that it just would be a really great gift for her to get a top-of-the-line sewing machine. And, John, I have gotten more satisfaction out of having purchased that for her than anything that I can remember having gotten satisfaction out in having purchased for myself in many, many years. I just love to see her sitting there and marveling at what the machine will do. It's just quite clear that, in fact, much of our satisfaction comes from caring for others. 
You know, I can really affirm that from my time as a pastor. It was a strategy. If I could get people to give a little bit that they had together in their life, if I get them to give that away, it would be amazing how much the other parts of their life would not seem as painful. Giving, you end up, you can't outgive God to be trite. Yes, yes. It seems to me that contributing to the well-being of somebody else's life is probably the most important factor in giving our own lives meaning. But the thing we need to keep in mind here is that it's not an either-or. It's not as if either our suffering is an unsought gift from God that benefits basically us or that it's a gift to others. God, as the transcendent creator of the universe, of everything, isn't constrained by creation's limits. He can and does cause all things to be good, to work for good for both us as his individual children and for us as his church, and quite often, even for those who are not Christians. Let's just go back to Jeremiah for a minute. I mean, it seems like God put him through the ringer for the good of others, like ourselves, but how could it possibly be that he would have taken his life to be an unsought gift for himself? Right, right. I think we've got to be really careful here. I mentioned once before that when we look on someone who is suffering, We don't know how they are experiencing that, what their consciousness of it is like. And quite often, we tend to think that when we see someone suffering, that it must feel worse to them than it actually does. Well, I think that with Jeremiah, we don't know what was going on most of the time in Jeremiah's mind. We're told that at some points in his life, He found God's words so desirable that when they came to him, he ate those words. Remember our Lord's claim, which he, in fact, took from Deuteronomy 8.3, that we shall not live on bread alone, but on every word which comes from the mouth of God. Jeremiah found God's word to be so desirable when they came to him that he ate them and found them to be his joy and his heart's delight. Now, the place where that comes up is in chapter 15. In other words, it's still in the chronological stuff in Jeremiah, and it's before the great crisis in chapter 20. But I, I'm, I'm not particularly a betting man, but I would be willing to bet that Jeremiah had more experiences like that after he recovered from his crisis. In other words, uh, in the chapters that are broken up and fragmented from 21 through 52. As you really dove into Jeremiah, were there things that surprised you uh, that you learned that you hadn't understood before? Yes, any number of things. For one, I don't think, John, that it is clear until you really work your way through the book and you get some help working your way through the book that probably the first 20 chapters are more or less a chronological account up to the time of this great crisis, Pasher, and that 21 on are just episodes from various times in his life. And what it really takes generally 
unless you were to spend just days and weeks working at this all by yourself. What it generally takes is a good note saying that this passage, somewhere after chapter 21, say, this passage refers to this, which happened to Jeremiah at this time, and this other one refers to him when this happened to him at a different time. And so it seems to me that just even understanding the structure of Jeremiah was tremendously invigorating for me. And then then I think probably the greatest thing, John, was my sense when I realized that from chapter 21 through 52, Jeremiah never has the suffering in his life let up. It's hard the whole time. I think that the greatest thing that I got out of that was that God doesn't do this very often, but he may, he may, both for the good of his people and as good to the individual to whom this occurs, he may, in fact, never bring us back to the kind of happiness and peace that Naomi and Job knew. I think that is so important because really the how should we then live question takes us to the place when I picture us waking up in the morning to really putting our life in a much larger context. Life is not about me being happy today. I shouldn't have that as my goal, but the fact that God is going to use me as part of a bigger picture, and I don't know even what it can be. I picture the painter, and he's painting along, and I don't know what it's going to be, and I'm just, I'm going to kind of paint on the canvas, and I'm going to be okay with that because I don't have to. I'm not God. Exactly, John. Uh, As a philosopher, I know of something that's called the hedonic paradox, H-E-D-O-N-I-C. The hedonic paradox is that if you directly seek happiness, you're going to get less and less of it. So true, isn't it? It is. Uh, (laughs) I just want to thank you for actually for the encouragement and putting it in. It's weird how the Bible encourages us through some of the most discouraging. Uh, passages and and books. I mean, the I think of the book of Ecclesiastes can be really depressing. I mean, sometimes you want to say, "Don't read that when you have a pistol around." <laughs> right, right, right. No, no. Um, the the vast majority of Ecclesiastes, from one two through twelve eight, is telling us that all of us, including God's children are liable to all sorts of suffering and hurts in this life. And it's only after that that the author of Ecclesiastes says, okay, your business is to obey God and do what he wants. That's all he requires of you. But we really should throw lamentations out, right? (laughs) Well, actually, I think lamentations itself helps us to realize just how awful things can be. And in that way, it keeps us from thinking that the Bible is a fairy tale. It it helps us to realize that the Bible does not look away from the horrible things that can happen to us in this life. It's willing to look them full in the face and yet affirm that for those who put their faith in God's Son— Ultimately, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death.
And aren't we reminded of that just when we dig into what the cross means? We're used to it as a piece of jewelry, as something that's up in front of a church, as a symbol, as a logo. But I heard a man suggest in a teaching I heard this morning that maybe a more accurate image these days would be an electric chair. I think that in its own way is pretty good. Because the cross has been, should we say, whitewashed for us. Yeah. It's been sanded. It's been smoothed. Uh, It's uh, no longer a symbol of torture. And we remember Jesus saying, you know, kind of let this, I wish, let this cup pass from me. And I wake up in the morning and I struggle sometimes in light of things. And I say, hmm, I don't think I'm going to the cross today. It's probably going to be a little bit better than that. Right. (laughs) Mark, thank you and uh, look forward to next time together. Thank you, John. So even when there is real pain in our daily lives, we should aim to live in light of Jesus' resurrection, which is God's ultimate assurance that one day there will be no more suffering, no more tears, and no more death. As this truth alters our perspective, suffering won't challenge our faith, but authenticate it. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, church hurts and remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org if you found this content helpful let us know by leaving a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen we'd love to hear from you and your review will also help others find these discussions as well this is lauren susanto on behalf of mark and john thanking you for listening to when the stars disappear